Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we are going to do a show on a very interesting topic and that is on private military contractors. And today I'm very happy to have Sean McFate with us to discuss this and he has a great background which I will introduce him in a moment. He also has a recent book that has just come out called Shadow War, a Tom Locke novel. In this, he has veered away from the nonfiction genre to the fiction, which we will talk about this book a little bit further in the discussion. It blends in with the topic of private military contractors because the main character is one of those. So first and foremost, thank you so much for coming on the show, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here, Chelsea. Sean is an expert in national security, foreign policy, terrorism, and the future of war. He is also a professor at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He is also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and an adjunct social scientist at RAND Corporation. And among his numerous career successes, he served as a paratrooper and officer in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. And after this, he also worked in Africa, among other countries, as a private military contractor. So he has both knowledge in the field and knowledge from further studies in this topic. So you're the perfect person to discuss this. Also, aside from Shadow Wars, he has a book that's not, uh, that is nonfiction, and it's called Modern Mercenary, Private Armies, and What They Mean for World Order. But let's start off with discussing private military contractors. What is a private military contractor? Well, a private military contractor is some as a civilian, um, usually with a military background, who does military-like services uh, for pay. Um, some call them mercenaries. Uh, some call them security contractors. They don't. They have multiple names, and uh, the word mercenary, of course, carries heavy negative connotations. So they shy away from that industry. But in reality, when you're paying a civilian person to do paramilitary operations, they are mercenary-like. And how are private military contractors used, and who are the people that are using them? Well, so this is a good question. So in my nonfiction book, my academic book, I have a taxonomy that explains differences uh, between you know, a private security con contractor versus a private military contractor. But if we could step away from that, in reality, um, the, the, the private military contractor slash mercenary, I'm going to use those words interchangeably, um, are those who either are trigger pullers or train others to pull triggers. In other words, they are, you know, they're, they're carrying weapons and they will fire them in a war zone uh, in a paramilitary or military-like way. Or they're raising indigenous forces the way special forces does. And the truth is, is if you can do one, you can do the other. And they're in the same moral universe. Um, these are not like other wartime contractors. I mean, a lot of war contractors are just like repairing vehicles, cooking food. That's fine. They're innocuous. I'm talking about the lethal ones. What type of companies or entities are enlisting private military contractors and what sort of jobs do they do? I know that's, that's a hard question because, as you said, they're, they're used in a lot of different instances. But what kind of industries, I guess that's the best way of putting it, do we see them being used the most? 
Yeah. So, I mean, in now in the early 21st century, the types of clients who are hiring them, there's a couple. There are uh, there are nation states like the United States of America and others who are using uh, these services. Uh, Vladimir Putin also. Um, but there are also there's also industries. So the extractive industry, for example, oil, gas, mining, timber. These this industry has no choice. They have to go where their asset is, where the mine is, where the oil fields are, and those are very dangerous places. So you'll see private security or private military contractors in North Iraq and in, in Kurdistan, for example. Um, you also see freighters and like shipping lines using them, tankers. Um, going through pirate waters off of Gulf of Aden, Gulf of Guinea, what they'll do is they'll have like, you know, armed contractors of the sea, which are really privateers. They'll be floating in arsenal ships someplace off the coast of Somalia or, or Gulf of Guinea. And on them, they have their armed, it's like their armors. Um, and they will helicopter, uh, like a squad of, mercenaries or privateers onto a tanker or to, or to a freighter and they will guard your ship as you go through pirate waters and when you're done they will chop her back to the to the mothership um so we see them also rich people uh, if you're for example um in 2008 i was asked on a pro bono basis to advise uh an ngo and um, what happened is this this NGO was a, was approached by a very famous and very rich Hollywood actress, and she wanted to stop the genocide in Darfur. And what she was going to do was hire Blackwater to do a humanitarian intervention in Darfur, and then hire or give money to uh, a human rights NGO to do a name and shame campaign globally to sort of provoke the UN into, into a more robust peacekeeping mission to end this genocide. And the NGO asked me if Darfur, I mean, if, if Blackwater could do this. And the answer was yes, they could. Um, at the end of the day, all parties decided they wouldn't go forward. But I think we're going to see that again in the future. Some very rich person, an oligarch, uh, hiring these types of firms to do whatever. And that right there has a lot of implications to it in my mind that someone that has a wealth of money at their disposal could potentially hire a small army for whatever their cause. And thinking along those lines, how does the international community and looking at like international security, how do they look at private military contractors? Because it sounds like in one sense, they can be very useful for stopping horrible regimes, genocide of a country, and so forth. And then on the other hand, they could be used for potentially illegal activity done on the part of someone that just has a lot of funds at their hand. Well, if the international community remains in cognitive dissonance about this rising global industry, um, and there's multiple reasons for this, we, we are all bred whether it's international relations like scholars or, you know, State Department foreign service officers or, you know, the United Nations, we are bred in a very Westphalian context where only states have a monopoly of force. And uh, our bureaucratic structures are, are, are established to engage in interstate discussions and interstate war. We are not very good at dealing with non-state actors, whether they be terrorists or they be mercenaries. Um, and so... 
I remember having a discussion when I was a grad student at Harvard with my thesis advisor, which was Ash Carter, who's now the Secretary of Defense. And this was 2003. And I asked him, you know, the U.S. is going to create this new labor pool of, of for-profit private warriors. Aren't we worried about that? And he said, no, we, we're not worried about that. I'm like, well, why not? Um, and he said, well, they'll just go away after we're done using them. And this is the problem with U.S. government policymakers, for example. They are mistaking this industry for cheap army reservists who will basically demobilize like they did after World War II and reintegrate into civilian society. But that's not what these companies do. Private military companies seek new clientele. And that's what they're doing right now. And we're seeing supply and demand diversify in the market for force. And we're seeing it boom. And the reason is, is that people are willing to pay whatever it takes to buy security in an increasingly insecure world. And I'm going to use the acronym PMC from now on for private military contractors. It's a little bit shorter to, to say, but who are the big PMC firms here in the States? And well, what are the majority of their clientele? So the big PMC firms, uh, the private military companies are uh, like DynCorp International, one of my former employers. Um, and there's been some mergers. So Blackwater, which changed its name to Academy, merged with a, a rival called Triple Canopy, and they're calling themselves Constellus Group. Um, then there are some others uh, as well. Um, but the, the industry is no, it's not really dominated by those companies anymore. Um, that was very Iraq War 2009. Uh, now, since the U.S. has sort of pulled back from the market for force, since they've drawn down in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're seeing the industry diversify and proliferate. So you're seeing a lot more indigenous companies. So in, in 2015, for example, we saw a lot of mercenaries around the world. We saw Nigeria. Uh, hire mercenaries to work with their military to wipe out or push out Boko Haram. That's a big deal because Nigeria is one of the strongest militaries in Africa. And for six years, they could not contend with Boko Haram, a violent Islamic extremist group. And within weeks, the mercenaries uh, with, and the military there pushed out Boko Haram to other, well, frankly, into their neighbors' backyards and, and also took back key cities. And many are wondering, hmm, maybe we could do that against al-Shabaab and ISIS. And there was no international outrage against Nigeria. And Nigeria wasn't alone. We also saw the Emirates use uh, mercenaries to fight Houthis in Yemen. We've seen mercenaries on both sides of the Ukraine conflict. We've seen mercenaries uh, in Iraq and Syria. Mercenaries are now sort of as these like these are not like companies like Dyncor. These are, you know, we don't really know who these all these mercenaries are, but they're out there. They're out there fighting, and we're seeing a, an, a market emerge for their for their services. And you mentioned Nigeria using PMCs. Do we see other countries having their own companies that are PMC companies, so similar to DynCorp and and so forth, but foreign? Yes, we do. Yeah, so. 
we we see, but they're not nationalists. These are like multinational corporations. They they'll serve anybody really. So we'll see. You know, Uganda has uh, private military companies or PMCs, and they're hiring them to for to you know for peacekeeping operations in Somalia. Um, we're seeing you know private you know basically counter piracy PMCs, and that industry is based out of London. Um, we're seeing also like warlords in Afghanistan and Somalia say they're PMCs for hire and people are hiring them. In fact, in 2011 and 2010, the U.S. military used to hire warlords who call themselves private military companies for U.S. military operations in Afghanistan. Um, we're seeing a lot of indigenous PMCs arise in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and also we're seeing PMCs all over the Congo and resource-rich, resource conflict-rich places. From what you just described, it almost seems like you have sets of, well, in your opinion, would you consider it sets of like, good PMCs and bad PMCs since some <laughs> are potentially warlords and others might be ex-U.S. military that decide that they're going to have a career as a private military contractor? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, I talk to a lot of, you know, being from the industry and also now being a, uh, a scholar, commentator, policy advisor on the industry. The industry is like very quick to say we're a good PMC. I'm I'm much more objective. I don't really care what you consider to be good. Just because you work for America doesn't mean you're good. Um, there's always issues of safety, quality control, accountability, transparency, etc. That doesn't change really if you're a Dyncor or if you're some warlord. Um, you know, Dyncor would strenuously disagree with that. Um, but you know, I, I could you know, there's there's depends who you talk to, right? Uh, I think there's a market for force. I think there are private military contractors slash mercenaries. Um, and I think we need to be very cool-headed about what this augurs for the 21st century in terms of security governance because the bottom line is you can't regulate this industry. Who is a general individual that decides to become a private military contractor? I mean, clearly they have great skills in combat, but is there sort of a poster boy of what companies are looking for, or can anyone with good tactical skills potentially become a private military contractor? Well, from my experience in the industry, um, and uh, being a manager in the industry, when I had a, a mission, if you will, I had to assemble teams of people and uh, create programs, and I would look for ex-military folks. Um, but the, here's another thing that people don't really realize is that these companies, like you think of like DynCorp or Blackwater, you think of them as, oh, they're full of Americans. They're, that's not true. They're multinational corporations like any other multinational corporation. So their headquarters might be in Falls Church, Virginia, and they say, we, you know, we, they all might be American C, the C-suite, like CEO, COO. But the, most of the rank and file are from all over the world. I'll be working next to somebody from Mexico, from Guatemala, from Ghana, from Australia, doing the exact same job, getting paid different rates, um, you know, and these really international teams. And, um, and what the, the, the reason this is important is because when the company's contract ends, 
all these people now seek different contracts elsewhere. And we're also, this is how the, this private military world is proliferating around the world uh, is because you have all this international talent out there creating their own companies, going home, creating private military companies, wherever they came from, like in Mexico or wherever. And it's, it's basically proliferating the industry. Really interesting. So some might say, because if you do look on the internet about this topic, the idea of pay and pay for these sometimes very dangerous missions can be higher than general pay if you're doing a nine to five office job. Some might think that money is a major factor for an individual's choice to become a PMC. What was your reasoning when you decided to become a PMC? And in your field experience working with other PMCs, what were their narratives of their choice to become a PMC? Well, that's a great question. Um, I did it (laughs) in a strange way because I... I, I was a, a paratrooper in the 82nd for many years, and I got out in 2000 thinking that the future of the U.S. military was nothing but peacekeeping, like the Balkans. And <laughs> turned out to be very wrong. Um, and I kind of fell backwards into it. I, I, was, I entered grad school. I was at Harvard, and I thought I made the worst mistake of my life. I was doing, like, you know, economics problem sets and statistics, and I was like, I want to study – strategy and warfare. I don't want to study, you know, Bayes, Bayesian theorem and probability. Um, and I got a call from Don Corner National. Literally, I was like crossing campus and they said, basically, we need to raise an army in Africa. We think you can help us do it. Would you consider taking some time off from your graduate studies? I ended up dropping out of Harvard and going to Africa. And I was there for many years uh, doing all sorts of really weird things, things that would shock people, like things that you wouldn't even know we would even outsource, like raising armies. The fact that a company on the New York Stock Exchange can raise an army is pretty shocking because if you can raise an army, you can also deploy it. I mean, DynCorp never wanted to deploy an army, but they could have if they wanted to. Um, or doing some things that only the CIA should really be doing or only special forces should really be doing. Um, and that I did it because it was interesting work. The pay wasn't that great. There's a lot of myths about the pay. But when you when you join this industry, unlike a soldier, you get a bump up in pay, not huge, um, but you give up a career, you give up a pension, you, you give up VA benefits if you get injured. I mean, if you get injured as a contractor, they treat you on the field of battle and they ship you home and then you're dumped on the street. There's nothing else. Or you go into public, you know, health care. Um, and there's some ethical issues about that, too. Um, now, when I was recruiting for the, the industry, people joined for all sorts of reasons. A lot of people, jo- they were all ex-military, the people I recruited for the most part. Um, they joined because uh, some of them wanted the money. Uh, some joined because they didn't know how to integrate with the civilian world. They, they were a vet of Iraq and they had you know, many years or something like that or someplace and they just wanted, they had to get back to the, the war zone. Some of them were adrenaline junkies and adventurers. Some of them didn't know how to be a civilian. Some of them were just kind of like, want to go off. They want to go rogue. They wanted to kill somebody. Uh, and they didn't want to have the, the pesky rules of engagement that you would have if you were a soldier. Uh, because at the time I was serving, and to this day, if you, if you murder somebody in a foreign country and you're a private military contractor, I mean, if you're a soldier, you get court-martialed. If you're a private military contractor, 
you just get sent home. I mean, as Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, said in con- congressional testimony, a member of congressman asked him after Nisor Square after Blackwater killed 17 innocent civilians in Baghdad. Uh, congressman asked, you know, so Mr. Prince, what, w- what happens to your contractors if, after they murder people? And he says, well, they get, an aisle, they get a choice of aisle or window. And there are people, we try to weed them out, but there are people who join the industry because they just want to, they want to, you know, kill people. So there are all sorts of reasons why people join uh, the private military world. Um, There's a lot of opportunity for them, despite what people say. And they also like the choices as well. They get to sort of have their own kit. They get to control their deployments. If you're a soldier, you don't get to control your deployments. You're being sent on your deployment, even though your family is dissolving back home, you have to go. As a private military contractor, you can say, no, thanks. I, I want to have control of this. I, don't, I need to sit this out. So um, there's multiple reasons why people join the, the private military world. And some of the issues you just mentioned make me wonder what happens to these individuals once their time as a contractor is over. I mean, do they just sort of disappear into society or take off to some remote island because of yeah. experiences they've had and they have probably a lot of PTSD issues. <laughs> like what happens yeah. to these individuals? Do you know? No, I don't know. So this is the weird thing. So I keep in contact with my pals from the 82nd Airborne Division, but not people from the private military world. I think it's part of the nature of those two different communities. I think, um, you know, going, you know, warrior ethos is very challenged by this. Um, between professional public sector soldiers and professional private sector soldiers. And this is not a new thing. Um, This goes back to the Middle Ages when mercenaries were common. Knights and mercenaries hated each other. And when I left the 82nd and went to this industry, I lost a lot of friends. I had friends in the 82nd who said, well, you've gone to the dark side. You're just doing it for the money. You've lost all sense of morality. When I was a grad student at Harvard, I was accused by a fellow student of being morally promiscuous. Um, People really don't like uh, the idea of mercenaries. And the reason is simple. We venerate soldiers, just like in the Middle Ages venerated knights. These are people who don't work for the military. They serve. And they, they serve a code of protection and protecting the innocent and even laying down their life and sacrificing their life so that others may live. Uh, and this is, and society uh, generally sort of, uh, what's the word? Thanks. It has gratitude. You know, thank you for your service. Uh, vets here all the time. Mercenaries, private military contractors take this almost sacred duty and turn it on its head and make it into a transaction and people hate you for that. A, a rough analogy might be the difference between a wife and a prostitute. And people get very offended by this. And as a result, I think it has to do also with keeping in touch with people. Like, I keep in touch with friends who are paratroopers. I have no idea what happened to people I work with for many years in Africa. And I don't know where they go. I mean, some never return. <laughs> some just like, disappear. You know, we don't know what happens to them. Some maybe, you know, have a family in the suburbs. I don't really know. It's, it's a curious question. And something you touched on about the idea of war veterans that are military individuals versus mercenaries, PMCs, and, and the stigma towards PMCs, which I understand the concept, but 
also watching how the U.S. military works. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but war is a big business, even for a governmental entity like an army or navy, etc. So it, it kind of makes me surprised that people would look at PMCs with such disdain. And I understand that military veterans, you know, I have so much respect for military veterans, but yet war is a huge moneymaker here in the States. It's war keeps the economy strong. We're, we're building machines of war and selling them. So, I mean, it's kind of a, a double-sided, a double-edged sword, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, look, we, America has a very complicated relationship with business and war because we're a very entrepreneurial society. Um, but as Eisenhower warned us, beware the military-industrial complex that makes us want things we ought not to want. Um, and, of course, when Eisenhower was talking about the military-industrial complex, he was talking about a, an industry that, that created products. Now we have an industry that performs services, like trigger-pulling services, things that a generation ago would be considered inherently governmental that should never be outsourced. Even when the outsourcing revolution began with Reagan, they never imagined that we'd actually outsource military functions or intelligence functions. Those were always supposed to be inherently governmental. But over the years, the goalposts have moved. And now we have this really hypocritical relationship going on, having served on both sides of that divide. So, you know, uh, Americans think of Nisor Square, for example, again, when Blackwater contractors uh, killed several civilian Iraqis in a fog of war incident, that, that's one of the low points of the Iraq war. Uh, and, and eventually those contractors were certainly you know, sentenced to like 30 years in, in prison in a very a controversial case. Um, but who, we all remember Nisor Square, but who remembers Haditha, right? Haditha, a squad of Marines did something far worse than Blackwater contractors. They killed 21 um, Iraqi civilians from age three to like in their 70s. They shot a man in his pajamas, uh, a person in a wheelchair or a toddler, and they didn't do it in a fog of war situation. They did it in a, a revenge situation like My Lai, Vietnam. And nothing happened to them. The military investigated itself quietly, found these guys did nothing wrong. And the Marines were sort of, you know, given an administrative slap on the wrist, if anything. And this is a problem. I mean, in some ways, you could conclude from this that military contractors have to deal with a higher uh, code of ethical behavior than our own Marines uh, based on that data. Uh, yet Americans are fine to let that pass. So I think we have a moral hypocrisy uh, situation going on about this. And also the fact that when you ask Americans, you know, about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they would be shocked to learn that over half of our military force was contracted. Half. You know, during World War II, only 10% was contracted. Everybody else served. And, uh, and now we're getting to a point, and when I say contracted, I don't mean trigger pullers. I mean everybody, all the contractors, the ones who drive you know, trucks and the ones who translate, people who do innocuous things. But still, we're, we're, creating a, we're forging a dangerous dependency on the private sector to go to, to, go to war. And this is not good for our country.
considering everything that you have mentioned, are there rules or laws, both national and international, that apply to PMCs, or is this really an industry that's governed by shareholders and whoever's paying them? There's no regulation against PMCs. The manufacturer of toys has more regulation than the outsourcing of firepower, right? And, you know, it's, it's telling that after a decade of war, and, and again, using this industry where over half of the, of the force is contracted, over half, and there's still no regulation, that tells you something. When Senator Obama proposed regulation that President Obama has done nothing to do about to enact, that tells you something as well. This is the future way of American warfare. It's not drones and cybers as much as it is contractors. And there's a lot of nefarious reasons for this. Um, you know, there's a lot of gray area that the executive branch likes about contractors. One is that you can use them for plausible deniability. Uh, when you things that I was doing, in my opinion, in Africa, you know, we could have had the U.S. military do it. We could have had the CIA do it. But it, the risk of it blowing up and becoming a political international scandal was high. And if you can have a company own that failure rather than, say, the CIA, it's, it's better for one's political capital internationally. Um, so other reasons is that contractors don't count as boots on the ground. So right now we have 3,500 boots on the ground in Iraq, and that's capped because a lot of members of Congress don't want there to be mission creep in Iraq. But what's not known is there's twice as many contractors there in Iraq right now. So we have a close to like 11, 13, 11 to 12,000 boots on the ground. Also, nobody cares about dead contractors. They don't count as body bags. We, we, we venerate dead soldiers. We venerate dead Marines. But dead contractors, eh, nobody cares, which is kind of morally gross. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why uh, policymakers, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are attracted to, to contractors. Um, and and that's partly why they don't regulate them. Um, and lastly, even if, even if you... How would we regulate them? I mean, there's not, there's no Geneva protocol to deal with private military contractors. The the international law on the books about mercenaries is ridiculously ambiguous and impossible to enforce. And even if they created a new Geneva protocol, it would be very difficult to enforce. I mean, if you look at all the the mercenaries running around like Nigeria and Yemen, who's going to arrest them? You know, are we going to send in the Marine Corps to arrest them? That's very unlikely. And even if you do send somebody in to arrest them, the mercenaries can kill your law enforcement, which is what happened in the Middle Ages a lot. So this is one industry that cannot be regulated. That has a lot of implications to it in as far as the future and, as you said, future warfare. And I would like to talk about that a little bit later. But I want to steer the conversation to your new fiction book, Shadow War, a Tom Locke novel. And I've had the pleasure to read most of it. I'm still a little bit further than halfway through. And it's really an interesting, exciting, wild ride, I'd say. Um, A lot of the instances in the book, I would say, are based on current events, which I really find fascinating um, because you're learning as you're reading as well, if you might not know about certain situations. So... First of all, why did you veer away from the nonfiction since, as you mentioned, you do have a nonfiction book, which we mentioned at the start of the talk as well, and jumped into the world of fiction? What was your reasoning? Well, I, I, 
I did it because I didn't want to be sued to death. <laughs> so, so when I, um, this actually began as a memoir of, of some work I was doing as a, a private military contractor slash mercenary, uh, depending who you talk to in Africa. And my agent said, look, Sean, you're going to, if you continue to, you, your companies, you work, your clients will go after you legally. The U S government might come after you for secrecy issues. Just make it into fiction and tell the story that way. And, um, and so I did that and, uh, and I was able to also make a, a more coherent story because sometimes when you write a memoir, you have to get into some technical detail about some legal issue or I don't know, whatever, but you can tell a, a better arc of story. But this, this book, Shadow War, uh, is more non, it's, it's like a Tom Clancy novel, but it's more nonfiction than fiction. And, um, it's really takes readers inside what it means to be a modern mercenary these days and who's hiring and who's not and what they're doing and why. Couldn't you elaborate a little bit more on that and give our listeners, I guess what you could call a teaser about the book and, you know, don't reveal a lot of the the juicy parts, but um, it is summer and, you know, a lot of people like pulling up a book on their vacations or their summer breaks. So um, give us a little teaser. Well, sure. So the book Shadow War, uh, it's a first in a series, and it's around this, the main character's name is Tom Locke, and he's a high-end mercenary, uh, former U.S. military special operations, now works for a company called Apollo Outcomes. Apollo Outcomes, imagine like Blackwater meets Goldman Sachs. That's what Apollo Outcomes is like. And um, and what what Locke's job is, is he's their guy in Africa. He's what they call a fixer. So if you're a big oil company looking to do, you know, work in a war zone, you would hire him or through this company to, uh, to facilitate that. I'm using all these words in quotation. Another great phrase they use in the industry is called shaping the environment. You'd hire this company to shape the environment. Uh, that means doing basically uh, paramilitary and intelligence-like operations. And so Locke is very good at this. Um, and he, this, the, the, the book opens in a scene in Libya, which is actually based on a planned operation that was in, I was involved in. During the Libyan civil war, an oil company wanted to go into Libya and establish like a pipeline and suck sweet crude oil out of Libya during the civil war and pipe and sell it to market. Um, and they they wanted you know, hiring a private military company to to do that for them, um, which you know we could have done. And but he gets he gets taken from by his boss Brad Winters, who's like this really big schemer in Washington D.C. And he's sent into Ukraine, and he's sent into Ukraine to sort of on a U.S. government contract to sort of um, f- protect the U.S.'s chosen oligarch to become president of Ukraine, to fight Putin's shadow war in Ukraine. Um, But he gets there, and then he realizes that maybe the contract is not a U.S. contract after all. Maybe his boss, Brad Winters, is, is, he doesn't know who he's playing for. Maybe he's in business for himself. And then um, he gets sucked into, you know, the strange warfare that is going on in eastern Ukraine. Putin's way of war right now, which I call like shadow wars in many ways, is a combination of of like mercenaries, uh, proxy militia, little green men, which are basically Russian military units without their insignia. And there's like cyber and other things and drones. Um, it's what modern warfare really is. 
It's um, and he and this takes readers on a battlefield tour like Tom Clancy to what that battle, what that war looks like, but also all the machinations going back home in Washington D.C. in Houston in New York City, Wall Street in London. All of these things are going on uh, at once. And like I said, I'm I'm further than halfway through, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's it's very captivating, and it's very fast paced, and it's very intelligent as well. And the characters are really diverse and not your typical action figure characters and something I'd call like an action also had that old spy novel feel to it too. So I've really enjoyed it so far. And you mentioned uh, a lot of current events are depicted in the book and, and they're very factual and actual. And looking at this, what would you say is the percentage of fiction versus reality in the book? Well, it's mostly, so this book is based on actual events of things I've done and seen. And the events that take place in Ukraine are based on actual events. Um, What is fiction is uh, I would take an actual event. And um, so I don't want to give too much away at the end, but in the end there's there's a factory in a certain town that's taken over mysteriously for, for several hours by armed men and then they disappear and nobody knows what happened to them. So I took, I took that, but then I give backstory to that to explain what, you know, what could have happened in a very feasible, but fictional way. So there's, it's, it's most of it is it's, it's meant to be a fun novel, like a beach read, but it's a smart international thriller that if you read it and you see what's happening in Ukraine, like, Oh, that's, that actually does happen. And what's really interesting too, is it's also about, you know, these shadow wars are, are waged all over the world. And, you know, with the Brexit, for example, uh, I think that marks the be- the beginning of more devolution within the EU, which is good for Putin. And Putin is going to lean heavily in Eastern Europe, and he's going to do to the Baltics what he's already done to Ukraine and to Georgia. He's going to take them over, not like uh, the Soviets took over Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68. He's not going to do it through military occupation, although he could. He's going to be much more clever. He's going to use these these shadowy-like instruments of power, including mercenaries. And he's going to destabilize his countries and then have a velvet regime change where he puts in his own person. And that sort of becomes a de facto duchy of Tsar Vlad. Um, and so we're going to see more of this type of warfare in our future. And I think going back to the discussion on private military contractors, mercenaries, however you want to term them, they seem like the perfect entity to use for an endeavor, like you just mentioned, of potential Putin futuristic uh, moves in, in Eastern Europe and so forth. It just seems like you have the capabilities, you have people that are really well trained, yet they don't have the ramifications of actually a country's army marching in and taking over another country. That's exactly right. So like, if, you know, the U.S., in my opinion, is really horrible at waging shadow wars. <laughs> um, and we were good at that once during the Cold War. Now we've lost that capacity. And we're getting beat on this, not just by Vladimir Putin, but by others. And the book kind of, even though it's a, it's a fun sort of, you know, summer read, 
it suggests that if we want to, you know, fight back, we have to get in the shadows as well. Um, we can't expect the enemy to fight according to our rule set. We need guys like Tom Locke and, and teams like that to go in there and do the things that we ourselves do not want to do, yet must do. And going back to the book, will we see more Tom Locke adventures in the future? Yeah, so Tom Locke, this is the beginning of a series, so the next book, which is already, already into the editor, Tom uh, is, is, is battling ISIS, and it has to do with also politics secessions around the Saudi royal family. And again, completely based on real events, and it takes you inside the interior lines of Mosul and ISIS and the Sunni-Shia wars that are going on there in the shadows at all times, as well as... Um, a nuclear Middle East. It, the, the, the novel, which I don't want to give away the plot, but it's based on a, on a very likely nuclear contingency uh, that we would not welcome in this country, but would likely happen, especially if Iran developed a bomb. You know, what would Saudi Arabia do? And they have a plan, and the book has to do with that plan. Well, that sounds like another really interesting wild ride, so to speak, and I look forward to that coming out. To tie in the whole show of private military contractors and Shadow War, which is based on a private military contractor, as you said, is based a lot on your own experiences, so it all ties in. I want to throw out a big question here. What do private military contractors mean for modern warfare and world order? Well, that is a great and big question. Yeah, it's a big <laughs> question. I book on, um, but look, this is what I think. I mean, when mercenaries, I'm going to use the word mercenaries here. Um, it's been said that the second oldest profession in the world. When we think, you know, when we look at military history, the vast majority, majority of it is private military history. Mercenaries have always been used in warfare and, in fact, have been a major component of warfare. From Xenophon to the Romans to the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages had mercenaries. They called them coldatiori, which means contractor in old Italian. And they formed private military corporations like they do today. Um, you know, it's, it's only anomalous that the last 300 years have not featured mercenaries, that's where the, the last couple hundred years is, is the exception and not the rule, yet we don't know that. And what's going on is as mercenaries have reemerged after the Cold War, we're going back to the status quo ante. We're going back to normal, which is a world which has private military force and mercenaries in it. And that world is going to be a world where states don't have a monopoly of force, and it's going to be a world that will devolve into disorder. And we're already seeing that right now, the balkanization of the Middle East. Um, Africa never quite had that. Uh, we're going back to a pre-Westphalian time, and especially you know, where anybody who, wanted, who had the money to wage war could wage it for any reason they want, political, non-political, who, any reason you want. And this will create new superpowers that will be really rich individuals and big companies who can afford. You know, what happens when ExxonMobil gets its own military? Um, and we're going to get to a world now where, uh, you know, already the fortune 500 are more powerful in many ways than most of the states in the world. So we're going to see a world order, which is going to be a lot more decentralized, 
a lot more polycentric, but it's not going to implode like what we think of the dark ages. It's going to be what I call durable disorder. It's going to be a world order that can contain problems but not solve them. And we're going to have a world where mercenaries will be on the rise and mercenaries are incentivized, as we saw in the 12th century, to start wars for profit, to elongate them for profit, to expand them for profit. And out-of-work mercenaries become brigands. Um, Out-of-work privateers become pirates. So we're going to see a world where mercenaries breed more war. Um, and, and this is going to be not World War III war. It's going to be sort of the war that the simmering low-grade, persistent warfare that we see around the world. It's a, war, it's a war that doesn't have any regard for laws of war, and um, we're already seeing it right now. So I guess in some I'd say that the rise of mercenaries is symptomatic of a deeper problem of global disorder, and that the 21st century will have more in common with the 12th century than the 20th. Well, that is a heavy way to conclude the show, but it makes a lot of sense from what we've discussed and looking at where the world seems to be heading lately. But <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. You know, we, we, we like to really get into the topics deeply and you know, it just is what it is. So for our listeners, Dr. Sean McFate, and as I said, he has his new fiction book, Shadow War, a Tom Locke novel. And then he has his nonfiction book, which is the modern mercenary, private armies, and what they mean for the world order. So if you want to read more on this topic, whether you want a, more of a fiction or a nonfiction, there's two great books out there. But thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your experiences and your expertise on this topic. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise.